Our text for today comes from John chapter 4, verses 31 through 35. Meanwhile, his disciples urged him, Rabbi, eat something. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you know nothing about. Then his disciples said to each other, could someone have brought, food, brought him food? My food, said Jesus, is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. Don't you have a saying, it's still four months until harvest? I tell you, open your eyes and look at the fields. They are ripe for harvest. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. All right. Welcome to church. It's good to see you. Uh, the reason we can't say the name of that football game that's going to happen in three weeks or two weeks is because we're on YouTube now, and if we do, I think they'll like take our video down. So th these are the, this is the capitalist society you've all chosen to live in. So sorry. <laughs> Just subtle digs at capitalism there. Don't worry about it. Uh, <laughs> um, well, welcome. It's good to see you. Uh, the, in the opening chapters of a book that was a book of the month for us at Grace Community a few uh, months ago called Seculosity by a, uh, an author named David Zoll, uh, he begins to talk about the ever-increasing level of busyness that many of us are experiencing in our, in our daily lives. And I think most of us realize that we are busy, probably too busy. But he illustrates this by uh, talking to a university professor, a woman named Anne Burnett at the University of North Dakota. And over the years, Burnett has been collecting and analyzing America's Christmas letters. This is, again, what uh, higher education is all about. Uh, we collect Christmas letters and we study them. Uh, you know what a Christmas letter is. It's that trifold letter that you put in your Christmas card along with the picture of your family. It's the stuff that is currently taped up on uh, our wall in our house, but is coming down soon. So I, we care about all of you, but we won't keep Christmas cards up for more than a month and a half. But uh, she has been analyzing these Christmas cards over the course of about 50 years uh, and over the decades, she's begun to compose some uh, takeaways from the, culturally from these Christmas cards and these Christmas letters. And what, uh, and what she's come to realize is that in the last couple of decades, these letters have become less and less about giving thanks or highlighting the significant milestones in a family's life, either that have happened or are going to happen in the following year. Instead, the Christmas letters are focusing more and more on how jam-packed the previous year was, right? I'm sure you got a Christmas letter or two that just said, well, we're busy, right? We're busy. We've been quite busy. People project how busy they are onto their Christmas letters, in part uh, because, uh, as Bennett says, people are attempting to project a, whole, a busier than thou, not holier than thou, but busier than thou attitude. And it's worn as a kind of badge of honor. People project their busyness on these letters in order to communicate that their lives are meaningful and important. Because if you're busy, well, then your life is meaningful and important, isn't it? But Zal notes in, this, in his commentary on this woman's research that this reality of the busyness and the need to project busyness, even in our Christmas letters to one another, must be stressing us all out, right? 
must be wearing us thin in some sense. And here's what he says about this. He says, for an, for an increasing amount of the population then, to be alive in the 21st century is to wonder privately how much longer, how much longer you can keep feeding the beast before you keel over. Right? Have ever, any of you ever felt like that on a Thursday? I think I got one more day of work this week. How am I going to continue on this path? For many of us, the pace of our lives is ringing us out. All right? Especially in a post-COVID world. I was reading one article this week in the New York Times where the, the author this, of this op-ed was talking about how the, the world in which we, we currently live post-COVID is every, all of the systems and all of the habits that used to work for people are no longer working for people. And he tried to come up with a name for what that is. And he just said, we are languishing. We are languishing. Which I thought was a very apt description for many of us of what the world looks like right now. But here is my kind of take on things this morning. I don't want to be busy. I don't, want, I don't want to live in a world where busyness is a sign of righteousness or importance. I don't want to be busy. I want to be fruitful, right? I want to, be, I want to live a fruitful, generative, loving, and compassionate life as a citizen of the kingdom of Jesus. This is what I want for my life and what we should all want. And busyness, as a habit of the modern world in which we occupy, is a threat to our spiritual and emotional health. It just is. It feels counterintuitive to us, but bu because busyness robs us of fruitfulness. It doesn't actually produce it. In our, our book of the month that we have, I think we have one copy out there, Richard Foster uses an image to describe how busyness feels, and I think it's incredibly apt to the world that we live in now. He says this, the world has little interest in Christian simplicity or any other type of simplicity. It flees responsibility and seeks unbridled pleasure. The attention of the world is like that of a housefly with, a hundred, with hundreds of lenses focused on hundreds of objects, never settled, never resting, and, never, and ever living for, not in, but for the moment. A housefly with hundreds of eyes feels like my life, right? Feels like my newsfeed on many of my social media platforms as well. Hundreds of objects, never settled, never resting. Have you ever finished a day running around to 50 different places, doing 50 different things? Uh, work is an endless to-do list, right? There's never, and no matter if you get to the end of that to-do list, it's, then there's another 50 things to do. To-do lists are never-ending running the kids around from activity to activity, seeing literally thousands of images flit across the screens of our lives every day, worried about the snow on the roof when it melts because it's clearly going to create an ice dam. And when there's an ice dam on your roof, you know what happens then? You get water in your kitchen. This is, I'm sorry, I'm projecting on you. The fact that you picked out ground beef rather than ground turkey and you can't make what you want to make with ground turkey, right? It just doesn't work. It might be a little healthier, but it just doesn't work. We, are, we, are, we go from one busy thing to the next busy thing, one busy week to the next busy week. 
everyone's always getting sick, right? Right now, everybody's, everybody's sick, and that's draining us. The check engine light comes on in your car, and that's just one more thing to do. There are emails to respond to, and people who are in need, and, and, we, and we believe in some way, shape, or form that our own effort of staying busy is going to fix these problems. We are unsettled, we are, we are restless, and we are busy. But this is not how we were created to be, is it? We are created, the scriptures tell us, to walk in the cool of the day with our creator and the lover of our souls. That doesn't sound particularly busy, does it? Sounds quite leisurely, in fact. We are created to move through life with purpose and direction, but without striving. This is what we were created to be. Now, at this point, you might be asking, Nick, how is this even possible, right? Like, how, how am I going to opt out of the busyness of my life? I have no other option, and to that I am sympathetic. I have work to do. I have numerous kids and a home and a life and goals to achieve. You're telling me that I need to be less busy. That's just one more thing, right? Let's all just write be less busy on our to-do list and try to check it off at the end of a day. It doesn't seem to work. The task, being less busy as a task uh, as, some, as, some, as something you need to do sounds a lot like just telling somebody that they need to be nicer, right? They need to effort their way into being a nicer person. It doesn't work that way. You can't necessarily will yourself into a less busy life, can you? In the same way that you can't necessarily will yourself to be a nicer person or a less frustrated person. But I'm convinced. I'm convinced that the invitation of Jesus for his followers and for us is, to, is an invitation into a life of discipleship where we learn, in the language of Eugene Peterson, the unforced rhythms of God's grace. The, to learn to live in the unforced rhythms of God's grace. And over time, and with a little bit of attention, guided by the Holy Spirit, we can learn how to live in the unforced rhythms of God's grace. And to not be propelled through our lives by a culture that says the way in which you are viewed as important is by being busy. All right? I love that phrase. I love that phrase. The unforced rhythms of God's grace. Uh, Richard Foster, again, puts, puts it like this. Here's, here's his summation of this idea. He says, we can live with a steady attention to the voice of the true shepherd. We can seek first God's kingdom. We, are, we can enter into God's righteousness. We can walk cheerfully over the earth. We can live simply and profoundly. What if on your tombstone they said, uh, blank lived simply and profoundly? It's not a bad goal, right? That's not a bad goal. I want to live a fruitful life, as I said earlier, and that very often requires that we learn to not be busy, to resist the centripetal force of busyness in our culture. And I think the key to resisting that, surprise, surprise, is Jesus. Jesus is the key to resisting the pull towards busyness that I think is ever-present in our culture. You see, Jesus had a lot to do, didn't he? He had a couple of things to accomplish as the Savior of the universe— no one in the, in the history of the world 
got more done in three years than Jesus got done, okay? Yet, if you read the gospel accounts, he never seems rushed or particularly busy, does he? When you read the gospel accounts of Jesus' life, there is an economy of movement to what he is doing. He seems to be deliberate in his activities, but also often open to interruption. One of the hallmarks of a person who is too busy is that they're not open to interruption at times. So this morning, what I want to do is to just take from Jesus' life a few observations and maybe uh, see a few of these keys from Jesus' life that will help us to be maybe just a little bit less busy. And then we'll, at the end of service, we'll come to the table of communion together. Sound good? So let's learn from Jesus for a few moments, and then we'll come to the table. So first this morning, the first lesson I think we can learn from Jesus' life as a key to be less busy or to uh, decrease our uh, maybe a, like attachment to busyness is, to simpl- is th- that Jesus had a simplicity of purpose in his life. Jesus had a simplicity of purpose. Knowing who you are and what you are called to do is probably the most significant piece of this, pu- of this puzzle of busyness. So many of us run around from thing to thing, from place to place, from job to job. We chase success, we chase significance, and we don't, in the midst of all of this, know what our purpose is. We don't know what we were created to do and to be. We don't live out of a deep well of purpose and significance and identity that God has for each and every one of us. We don't live from that place, and so we're always trying to find it by virtue of our own effort. Now, in modern life, when we hear this, this word purpose, what often comes to our mind is employment, right? Like the job I am supposed to do for the rest of my life is my purpose. But I'm not talking here about the thing you get paid to do. There might be some overlap there, but I'm not, it's not 100% that. Purpose is much deeper than employment. In the whole uh, of, in, purpose is about the whole orientation of our lives. We see this simplicity of purpose in Jesus' life in John 4 in our teaching text from today. The whole chapter, if you know John 4, the whole chapter of John 4 is the story of Jesus', Jesus encounter with the woman at the well. But near the end of the story, in verse 31, Jesus has already had this whole conversation with the woman at the well, and he sent her back into her Samaritan town where she was from. And, uh, and apparently, in this place, uh, because Jesus had been walking for a while and talking to this woman, the disciples get worried that he needs to have something to eat. They're concerned that he be fed. And so, so we pick up in verse 31 where it says this. Meanwhile, his disciples urged him, Rabbi, eat something. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you know nothing about. Then his disciples said to each other, who gave him food, right? Like who snuck Jesus a granola bar when I wasn't looking? Was that was how they thought of that? It's probably some cured fish. They didn't have granola bars. Um, and th- but uh, sorry, that totally offhanded. Uh, Spoken like a dad who's just constantly giving granola bars to his children, right? Sheesh. Verse 34. My food, said Jesus, is to do the will of him who sent me and to, f- and to finish his work. Don't you, have, uh, don't you have a saying? It is still four months until harvest. I tell you, open your eyes and look. 
at the fields. They are ripe for the harvest. Jesus here gives us a glimpse of his purpose. And what does he say? It's to do or to finish the work, to do the will of the one who sent me. He is actively connected to his purpose, and he is actively connected to the Father. You see, for Jesus, I think his purpose kind of had two components. And here are the two components that I think Jesus' purpose had. First, he was actively and intentionally connected to the Father's loving presence. We know this from his baptism, and we know this from other places. And second, he understood his purpose in serving and loving the world, right? He knew that he, what he had to do, and he knew where his focus needed to be. And so when the disciples say to him, are you hungry? He, said, he uses it as a teaching opportunity to tell them that the, that the engine of his life, the thing that his life runs off of, is not where his next meal is going to come from, but rather the, the purpose of life that God has set before him, which is to pay attention to him, to God's presence, to the Father's presence, and to serve the world by laying down his life. And Jesus is resolutely committed to these two realities. You see, the, the core of all of our lives, and what I think we can learn from Jesus' life here, is that each and every one of us, in some sense, not to the extent of Jesus, but the purpose of our own lives is similar to Jesus's. First, we need to stay intentionally connected to the loving presence of God. This is one of the core purposes of our lives. Here's how the psalmist says it in verse 27, verse 4. One thing I ask from the Lord, this only do I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to seek him in his temple. For the psalmist, it was this active cultivation of awareness of the loving presence of God. It was the continual desire to dwell in the house of the Lord, to be near the Lord that was a significant aspect of the psalmist's purpose in life. You see, if our purpose is anything other, if the, if the core of our purpose in being is, is, is about getting our significance or worth from anything other than the loving presence of God, well, then we will be chasing that thing forever. And we will be busy because we will never catch it in a way that will bring us satisfaction in any way, shape, or form. Even if our desire is a good one, even if your desire is to be a good worker, right? I just want to do a good job. That's an admirable plan. But guess what? You are never going to do a 100% good job. No job you do will ever be complete. Nothing you do will ever be perfect, right? And if, and if that's your God, and if that's where you tap meaning, you will chase that thing forever, and it will let you down, correct? Because you will never work hard enough, and you will never work in, in a, as perfect a manner that everything is exactly as they should be. But if, the, if, the, if what you work for and towards is God's loving presence, then you can run off that steam because God's loving presence is always available to you. And, you, and the very fact that you will fall short of God's standards and his love is the very reality of the fact that God's grace is present for you in the midst of those times. Which means God says, I know you won't do what the psalmist says in Psalm 24 perfectly, but my grace is present there for you. 
And so to stay connected to God's loving presence as the engine of our lives is the thing that propels us in a way that doesn't require us to be a people who strive endlessly or work tirelessly in order to achieve it because we can't achieve it. Because God's loving presence, his forgiveness, his salvation is the gift of God in Christ. And we can't work to get it. But we can position ourselves. We can seek the Lord. We can, we can seek to dwell in the house of God. We can seek to dwell near Jesus, to gaze upon the beauty of this God. And in that place, we gain an awareness of God's love. And then we work from a place of acceptance rather than from a place of approval, because we already have God's approval, correct? But the second key to purpose is that second thing, because while Jesus operated out of his life as a, as a, as a son of God, out of this deep well of his awareness of his, his belonging to the Father, and so should we, he also understood that part of his purpose in life was to serve others. He says in this passage, uh, Jesus had sent the woman at the well back home, and she went back into her Sumerian town and told people that, about Jesus. And when Jesus tells the disciples to look up, look at the fields, the harvest is ripe, what many scholars believe is happening in that moment is that people are coming back out to him at the well because the woman has gone into the city and told her, her community, her friends about Jesus. And when, when he says that, look up and look up, see what's happening. And these people are streaming to Jesus. You realize that Jesus's purpose in that moment is to serve these people, to love these people, to be, to be the extension of God's grace in that moment. And obviously that has larger ramifications as well, because Jesus knows where he's headed, right? He's headed to the cross. He's headed to make atonement for sin. He's, he's headed to, uh, to the purpose for which he came, which is to be our salvation. And yet, that loving, that, it, it, the thing that motivates him in that place is the loving service of other people. Jesus had this, like, through-going sense in reality, this conviction that his purpose in life was to love and serve people. And ours is as well. Your purpose in life regardless of what you do for a paycheck, is, to, is both to be connected to the loving presence of God and to serve other people. And every single one of us will serve people in a different way. The way you can serve people will be different than the way I can serve people. The way you love people is different than the way I will be able to love people. But we are all called in our own special way to embody that, the love and service to others. And so, when we realize the way in which God has both gifted and empowered us to love and serve others, and we can stay vitally connected to God's love in Christ, when those two things meet, that's where we find our purpose. That's where we find our purpose. And then that wandering eye that's always looking for the next, the next thing over the horizon, the next, the next exciting thing, the next opportunity to advance in my job that will make me feel purposeful and meaningful in that place, then those things all fall apart or fall away. And at that point, when we discover our purpose, we can, we can live out of the deep well of our purpose and out of our connection to God's loving presence. And we can live in that place focused and directed lives. 
Because if you know what you're here for, and you know what motivates you, well, then you can kind of, um, you can clear away all of those things in your life that are extra, and you can focus on your purpose and what God has created you to do and to be. And that becomes a, actually a freeing place, because you don't have to say yes to everything. You just get to say yes to what it is that God has for you in a given moment. And that is not a busy place. That is a fruitful place. So that's number one. That was a long number one, wasn't it, right? Simplicity of purpose is number one, just for the reminder. Number two, and they won't all be this long. No, the second thing we can learn from Jesus' life about uh, learning to not be quite so busy is no, we can learn to accept our limits. We can learn to accept our limits. You know, Jesus accepted his limits. Jesus is the second person of the Trinity. He is God incarnate. And yet, as in, as the incarnate word, he had limits, or at least he accepted limits on his life. Jesus, in John uh, chapter 6, just a couple verses past our teaching text for today, says this. He says, I do only what I see the Father doing. I do only what I see the Father doing. Jesus had this ability to understand that he, his job was not to do everything but that there were certain limits. Jesus did not feed everyone he came into contact with that was hungry, did he? Not everyone. Jesus did not heal every single person in all of the Middle East. He, but he did heal many, right? He did feed many. He did, do, he did minister to thousands, but he did not do everything because everything was not his calling in that moment. He had limits, and he accepted them. And the truth of the matter is, is that you have all kinds of limits, too. Some of us don't think we have any limits. Some of us think we can do everything, and so we say yes to everything, right? You have spiritual limits. You have emotional limits. You have physical, limit, uh, physical limits. You and I, each, together, have a finite number of minutes and hours in the day. And one of the ways you can know that you have not been accepting your limits is when you get home and, and you say, there's no more time. I need more time. Somebody give me more time. There is no more time, <laughs> right? You can't add a single second to the day unless it's leap year, and then you get an extra day. Is that this year? That's not this year, is it? Okay, never mind. That was like last year, I think. We have physical limitations on our lives, and we have to accept our limits. You see, here's the reality. God created you with limits. And to act in such a way as, as to believe that you don't have limits is actually to act in disobedience to the way he created you to be. Correct? So there are things that you will say yes to that you shouldn't say yes to. All right? There are things that you're doing in your life that you probably shouldn't be doing. There are ways in which you are over-functioning. Some of us are over-functioners. Some of us are um, under-functioners. But if you are over-functioning in your life right now, part of the way, reason that might be the case is because you haven't accepted or rested in the reality that you have limits. Jesus had limits, and he didn't do everything for everyone. And if Jesus couldn't do everything for everyone, neither can you, all right? And neither can I. And we need to learn to accept our limits in life as honestly a gift from God, which kind of leads us into this last point, 
Jesus had rhythms of rest, margin, and Sabbath in his life. Jesus had rhythms of rest and margin and Sabbath in his life, and so should we. In Luke 5, verse 16, we read this, but Jesus often withdrew to lonely places and prayed. Whenever Jesus was uh, done with a stressful time of ministry, very often he, uh, uh, he would send the disciples away and he would kind of disappear for a period of time. He would walk, he would go on a long mountain hike and he would pray, he would rest, he would Sabbath. Busyness requires that we be always on, always available, always working. Rest and margin require that we relinquish our need to be always moving and always on and always available, right? That we relinquish the idea that if I'm not constantly working, everything is going to fall apart. Sabbath in the scriptures is a day where we cease our striving in order to honor God, but also to teach ourselves that the world does not run on our striving. The world runs because God is faithful, and he will continue to keep it spinning as long as he sees fit. And we rest as a way of reminding ourselves that we are not the center of it all. We are not the center of it all. And the world's movement does not depend on us. Yes, there are things that depend on us, and we do need to work. But, we, but the, the, I'm convinced that the mistake that most of us make is not working too little. It's working too much. It's believing that if we, if we sit down or if we pay attention to our kids for, for too long, well, then the ice dam's going to happen. You can see what <laughs> controls most of my mind. The ice dam's going to happen on the north side of my house where it doesn't get enough sun, and we're going to have a wet kitchen again, right? We, we have this fundamental belief, and honestly, one of my struggles as a parent and as a homeowner and as a person, generally speaking, is the ability to just stop doing stuff. Like, the grass can get mowed later, right? But I do need to throw the Frisbee with my kid from time to time. I don't need to be always looking over the shoulder of the person I'm talking to in order to accomplish the next task, right? I don't know, need to always be looking over the horizon in order to uh, be sure that I'm doing enough or that I'm good enough. You see, when we practice building intentional margin and Sabbath into our lives, we practice our dependence on God, and we learn in that place a kind of stillness. We learn in that place, I think, a kind of intention in our working lives that helps us to be fruitful. The truth of the matter is, is that many of us have exchanged fruitfulness for busyness. And by building in margin in our lives, by building rest into our lives, by building Sabbath into our lives, and by that I mean literally Sabbath. Like, take a day a week where you don't do anything. Uh, don't do anything, that, not anything. <laughs> I will come, I will carry you around on one of those, <laughs> what are those things that make people get carried around? No. What I mean is like where you don't do anything, uh, where you intentionally have a day that's set aside that, that is restorative, not that takes, right? That you intentionally have a day where maybe you don't pick up your phone, 
where you do spend intentional time with your children. And that might mean that you're more intentional during the week so that you can free up space for Sabbath on one day a week, whether that's Sunday, which is a great day, because Sabbath is supposed to be a day that is dedicated to the Lord, and so worship should be a part of that day. But also a, a day where we're able to just say, like, I am going to put the responsibilities of this world on God, and I'm going to do on this day, I'm going to do and be on this day the person that God has created me to do and be. And we understand that we need rest, and we need margin, and we need space. Now, just for the record, this, when I say we need rest and we need margin, this isn't just kicking back, right? This is doing things intentionally that restore our souls. This isn't like I work hard during the week and I, I party hard on the weekend, right? Partying hard on the weekend will not make you feel, make your soul feel restful. Just for the record, like uh, going hard during the week, on the weekend because I've earned it or something is going to keep you burnt out and tired, right? But what, but what restores, and every one of us is different, whatever restores, uh, builds up your battery or, or, or restores your heart and soul and emotions is different than what does it for me. But as we find that place and as we pursue that place and as we seek to put ourselves in positions where we are open and available to God's loving presence, even as we rest, even as we Sabbath, even as we find margin in our lives, I believe that from a, when we work from a place of rest rather than from a place of earning, that what we actually do is we work in a much more healthy and much more generative way. We can live lives of fruitfulness rather than busyness. Have any of you seen that? Um, there's been, there was a video going around of like your mom before Thanksgiving, and it was just a, like a, a cell phone camera of a person just running around going, put away the toys, pick up the, you know, didn't you, your moms do this? <laughs> but like uh, the frantic nature of, of clean up the house before, pe before company comes over because we don't want them to think that we're dirty or, or, or things are, are misaligned in our lives. That, frant that working from that place of that frantic energy is a lot what I think of mo what most of our lives feel like on a, on a random Tuesday at three, right? But God doesn't have, that's not what God wants for you. What God wants for you is to work from a piece of restful, loving, uh, from a uh, restful, loving, his restful, loving presence. That's what God wants for you. And from that place, we're able to work well, and we're able to be fruitful. I have not gotten there yet, just for the record. I don't know if I ever will this in, in in my life this side of the resurrection but what i know is that that there is a resource of fruitfulness that is available to me as i learn from jesus to and i learn the unforced rhythms of his grace in my regular life and that's the invitation for all of us today amen 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 now as we come to the table of communion this morning if you would just uh with me Remind yourself of the fact that Christ came to us, not so that we would achieve anything for him, but so that he could achieve something for us. The truth is, is that part of the reason we come to the table of communion, part of the reason we come to the table of communion is to remind ourselves of what Christ d has done for us, 
so that we can rest in that place, so that we can, uh, so that we can rest in the knowledge of God's loving presence, and so that we can know that there is no work we can do, no striving that, that we can effort our way into, that will earn anything uh, that will earn anything of value, but rather that God's grace is an ever-present reminder to us of the fact that we are already accepted, that we are already loved, and that we are already His. Paul, as he's teaching the Corinthians about this practice of communion, says, For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The band can come up. That'd be great. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and you drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Now, we put these little communion cups on your seats because uh, just for the time being, with COVID numbers, what they are, we didn't want to all reach into the same, whoop, we didn't want to all reach into the same common, uh, common bowl today. But as we, as, as we receive, as we come to the table of communion, I just want to remind you that at Grace Community, we practice an open communion, which means you don't need to be a member of our church in order to receive with us. All we ask is that you follow Jesus. Uh, that you're a Christian, uh, and that as, as you come to the table, you acknowledge the lordship of Jesus Christ. Now, in just a moment, I'm going to pray. Paul reminds, uh, reminds the church that, there, that it is important that as we partake of this bread and this cup, that we examine our own hearts and our own souls, that, that we're aware of the fact that in, in, this, in this practice of communion, that we're aware of the fact that when we come to the table, that God is with us, that God is with us. God's always with us. This practice of communion is just a reminder of that. And so uh, I just want, before we receive this morning, I just want you to take a moment, wherever you are, just in, and to take, honestly, stock of your life, to humbly before God say, Lord Jesus, would you search me and know me? Would you, would you look into my heart and would you reveal to me in this moment anything that might be there that's unpleasing to you? And would you help me to repent of that thing? So we're just going to take 30, 45 seconds here in silence as we ask the Lord to search our hearts. All right? Father God, you search us and you know us and you see everything. And as we come to the table of communion this morning, God, we, uh, we hold our lives before you. And we offer up anything to you this morning that might be unpleasing to you, anything in our own hearts and our own lives that might be robbing us of joy, 
that might be robbing us of the life that you have for us in Jesus. And so right now, in the name of Jesus, we humbly repent of our sin. And we acknowledge you as the source of our life. We pray that you would help us to rightly order our lives, that you would make us holy as you are holy, and that we would find in your presence a fullness of joy. We love you, Lord. Let's receive the bread together. Let's receive the cup together this morning. Would you stand with me? And as we stand this morning, we, uh, we're going to sing together. And uh, Jocelyn reminded me this morning that communion, while a, uh, a practice that is reflective is also a practice of joy. So as we go from this place today, let's, let us go in a spirit of joy, knowing that we are forgiven of our sins, that Christ carries us on our way, and his goodness and his love are available to us. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's sing.